this episode of Into the Mystery, we're exploring Christ and Christ consciousness, using some of Jesus' teachings to understand better how that Christ lives within each of us and how it appears in this world, what its function is, and what we're really here for. Have a listen. We hope you enjoy. Maybe we start by observing that when we talk about Christ consciousness, we're not speaking of something that's specific to Christianity and that it is, in fact, an energetic attunement that is essentially awareness of the wholeness of reality. I mean, it's a, an understanding of non-duality at its base, but it's also something more than that. And maybe you can expound on that a little bit better than I can. Christ consciousness to me seems to be so many different things. Um, and I would say that it's not, it's not synonymous with Christianity as a religion, but it is synonymous with Christianity in its purest, truest form, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think of Christ consciousness, what I think of is the consciousness of unbound love and unity um, that informs everything we do, everything we engage with, in that sense that there is a unifying field. It is made of love. Mm-hmm. And when we are uh, aligned with it or attuned with it, as you said, there's a way in which our consciousness is possessed by that Christ nature. Mm, uh, okay. You know, I, I like that I idea of I like that idea of uh, being possessed in a way because mm. it does seem to have that um, dynamic to it that it does kind of grab you in a way yes. and it transform you as that happens. Mm. And once one's awareness is shifted from the idea of separation into one of um, communion and love, mm. Our experience of um, third-dimensional reality completely—it's uh, something altogether different. Well, the the possession seems to be this heavenly awareness, this awareness that is infused with such love and realness, taking hold of the earth, taking hold of the flesh, you know, mm-hmm. taking hold of the, the bones of, of the animal, and moving it in that unified way. Yeah, and it's interesting the way it, oh, we're getting into this territory again, of course, where words are not adequate. And, um, <laughs> always. you know, I mean, <laughs> always. And one only has to read some of the Christian mystics to get a, a better sense of what we're talking about here. But um, there's a kind of a recentering and a reattunement of oneself. And as you say, this enormous welling up of love that extends from the heart to the hearts of everyone around you. And it simultaneously seems to dissolve the distinctions and the differences um, that we would normally use to separate ourselves from one another. Mm -hmm. And instead kind of gathers one in. And maybe this is where that imagery of of Jesus having a flock that he gathered and tended comes Mm -hmm. from. um, Mm -hmm. Because there is that sense of I am no longer simply this awareness in this body, but this wholeness comes to me and infuses me and nourishes me in a way that mm-hmm. nothing material 
or outside of quote unquote me ever could. Ooh, so elegantly put. I like that. <laughs> the, the, the way nothing else could. You know, uh, as you were speaking, it reminded me, you know, there's probably no better authority on Christ consciousness than Jesus, I would say. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, we can make a distinction between Jesus as a historical being and a body and a human and maybe even an ego and the Christ awareness that he embodied. But when he says, uh, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am. And yes. it's what you just spoke of, is that when when the the boundaries of, of separation and distinction are allowed to melt in the warmth and fire of that loving, unified awareness, it's like whatever may differ in us or whatever may separate us just becomes irrelevant. Yeah. As we are, as I love that term, as we are gathered up yeah. in that uh in that shepherding awareness. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually, you used this quote the other night in Course in Miracles um, when you were chatting. Um, Jesus had said, whatsoever you do unto the least of my brothers, that you do unto me. And so that was another expression of this same awareness that there really is just the one consciousness. And we vary in our ability to uh, connect to that and to move and speak through that. But you can come to a place where you're interacting with another of whatever station in life. And this, of course, is why Jesus was able to work with beggars and work with criminals and prostitutes or you know people that, quote unquote, respectable society would have found off-putting uh, was because he saw this, that you can be interacting with another human being and suddenly have this absolute clarity of awareness that you are actually working with yourself, speaking to yourself, mm. extending mm. love or something else. Um, if you're harming someone, you're harming yourself. I mean, and yeah. it's a really difficult thing to describe until you've experienced this. But um, for example, there have been times I've been talking to you and it's just, there's only one of me here. Mm -hmm. There is just me, mm -hmm. I, the one. Yep. We should break that down a little bit. I love what you're saying because, you know, not only do we visit each other in that unity and communion, but there's also something to be said for our capacity to understand even the darkness that exists in us. You know, there's a lot of yes. messages that Jesus brings forward about, you know, like where he, uh, he comes upon the folks who are ready to stone the woman. And he says, you know, those of you who haven't sinned, you, those of you who haven't done wrong, you throw the first stones. Right. There's something of a, of a, a very human nature too. I mean, of course we have the transcendent unity, but there's something very human too, in that we're all capable of making mistakes. We're all subject to error. We're, we're all mm -hmm. capable of being hypocrites. And even that brings in this very human ingredient of that connectivity alongside that, um, transcendent unity. You know, I think that's that's going to your point. That's that's what makes Jesus capable of relating to the murderer and to mm -hmm. the prostitute is that he's able to see himself even as a human being in yes. them. Yes, yeah. exactly. That is such an important concept too, I think, in spirituality in general is coming to this, getting acquainted with one's demons and no longer disavowing them. Because we can't be truly whole and we can't be truly you know, acting in any kind of a moral capacity without that deep awareness. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm currently reading um, 
the historical or an account of the historical Jesus by Reza Aslan, um, who is actually a, a Muslim but um, a religious scholar, and he noted that uh, you know Jesus was not super popular in his hometown because they knew right. him. You know, and he in fact he said something like, um, you know, a prophet yep. will never be recognized in his hometown. Yep. Um, but part of the reason I believe he was persecuted was because his message threatened those who needed to disavow their their darker sides and project it onto him. I think you're going in a great direction because you, you connected several pieces that I think are important to the Christ consciousness, which is if we take Jesus the Christ as the archetypal human potential, mm-hmm. right, where we might come into full God realization and full contact with divinity as well as with humanity, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things said about Jesus is that he was fully human and fully divine together yes. at the same time. And if we hold that as our possibility and our potential, there's a way in which the integration of those darker parts of ourselves becomes the very essence of our wholeness. And the very essence of our wholeness becomes an act of individuation, a, a, yeah. a way of yeah. emerging within a full God realization, but in a way that is specifically, let's say, personal in its mm-hmm. nature. Yeah, that's, oh, I love that point. I love mm-hmm. that point because I think there's a, a misconception in a lot of folks' minds that, you know, if you awaken or if you are have been committed and sincere about uh, spiritual progress for a long time, that there comes some point where you are not fully human anymore. You know that you've suddenly become oh. this angelic being, and that is not at all the case. We still live with our humanity for the, for our entire lives, as long as we're in these physical forms. Um, that doesn't go away. You know, our usual day-to-day problems don't go away. The Even if you were to gain some yogic abilities, you are still dealing with all of these human features and flaws and maybe the relics yeah. of personality, etc. Yeah. Well, when I first read the Bible, um, well, especially the New Testament, when I first read it after a glimpse of awakening, I realized that the whole story, and I actually don't really care if it's historically accurate or not, because to me, sometimes fictions tell more truth than than factual <laughs> accounts, but um, there's something of a, uh, a journey of dissolution described in that text, right? That mm. brings about this, um, that brings about what you're talking about is the full merging of our innate divinity, our Christed nature with this human. And it doesn't, you're right, it doesn't, it doesn't cause our humanness to go away per se. I mean it does. It doesn't, it doesn't. But it certainly <laughs> transmutes the human experience, that's for sure. Of course, certain teachers, um, very advanced yogis or mystics, in their presence, you can feel the difference energetically. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's off topic, but no that that Christ that Christ consciousness carries a. I don't love the word vibration; it's too overused, but it does. It carries a vibration. Yeah, certain people can walk into a room full of people and instantly change the energy, and that is um, an example of the way the Christ current can do that. There's something in us that recognizes that and resonates with it when it's prominent when we're in proximity to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that proximity doesn't uh, require the physical, that the proximity to the Christ is, is, is psychic. It's, 
essential, it's energetic. And, you know, that's the mistake I think that people make when they, when they dispense with Christ as something that died 2000 years ago, Mm -hmm. rather than something that is alive and living and in every breath and in Mm -hmm. every moment and possible within every interaction. Yeah. Would you make a distinction between the Christ current or Christ consciousness and the Holy Spirit? Or are they essentially the same thing? Well, I would only make the distinction by saying that personally, I would only make, and this is my cosmology, not necessarily the cosmology of a church or or any other mystic, but um, to me, the Holy Spirit is disembodied. It is not of form. And what happens in the Christed nature is the full unity of the Logos, the Holy Spirit, with the body. Mm-hmm. And so it's the personhood of being versus the energy or frequency that sustains it. Like we might look at, to me, I might, we, I might look at the Holy Spirit as the mind of God mm-hmm. transmitted outward as a broadcast and the Christed nature being where the Holy Spirit meets the human, where they come together in perfect synthesis. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I tend to think of the Holy Spirit as something that moves with an intention and kind of coordinates. (laughs) I don't want to get too weird here, but kind of um, seeks and finds and coordinates um, consciousness in a way that serves God's will. Yes, it's conspiratorial. Conspiratorial. <laughs> yes, the Holy Spirit yeah. is the conspirator of love. The conspirator of love. I like that. Yeah. Its whole agenda is to make love happen, make unity happen. Oh, nice. I like that. Yeah. So you mentioned individuation. And that as one becomes increasingly established in Christ consciousness, that what results from that is uh, individuation, a sense of, this is a tricky, tricky topic here, and I'm going to try to be really precise with my words here, so I might go a little slower, but... um, Cool. Yeah, take your time. Go ahead. Yeah, as I I was thinking about this uh, topic all week, and I was thinking about Jesus and the way he taught, the way his ministry progressed, um, it dawned on me that um, one thing that people objected to in his time was the way he did not engage in the performative rituals of interacting with other humans. Um, and this, I think, speaks a little bit to his individuation because so much of the way human society operates is kind of scripted mm. and performative, and we are expected for example, to express certain emotions at other people's difficulties. Um, And Jesus knew as a result of his individuation that it wasn't his job to fix everybody. And it Mm. wasn't, I mean, I can only imagine (laughs) that once he had demonstrated that he could heal people, that there was a great demand for that service. And Obviously, he would not have been the man that he was, uh, the manifestation of the divine that he was, if he, if he had gone about trying to fix everybody else's problems or heal everybody's illnesses. That was not why he was there. And 
people must have been sort of, or some people must have been a little outraged at that. Um, but he saw from a higher perspective that that was not his purpose. And so from a personal standpoint, and I think maybe some people on the path can relate to this as well, there comes a point in your development where you realize this same dynamic that we can't fix everybody in, in our world. However, you know, family or intimate partners or friends or, you know, who may have assigned us that role and maybe expect certain things of us that our devotion shifts and there's an offense in that somewhere. For example, if there's someone in your life that always kind of relies on you to bail them out and suddenly you see that that's not your purpose, that that's not the appropriate action in your expression in this world. And then we begin to kind of approach this place that Christ must have experienced where we begin to feel individuated from those we were once intimate with and, and then we start to get into that sort of loneliness um, that is common on the path. Hmm. I think you have several relevant points to <laughs> maybe you can sort them out for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that you've you've brought together some points that may be difficult to stitch together, in that they're sort of separate parts of the journey or path. But yeah. I want to go back. I wanted to ask you what you mean when you say that Christ realized his pur pur purpose wasn't to heal. What do you mean by that? He performed miracles. We know that. And he healed people, and he raised Lazarus from the dead, and um, ultimately himself. But I've heard you talk about this before, too, um, the fact that Jesus could not fix everybody. He was not there to heal everyone's wounds, although he did on certain occasions. And I, maybe I'm projecting here, but I would imagine that in order to have the awareness that that is not your quote-unquote purpose, I mean, he healed in a way that was not physical. Right, So he came into this world to heal humanity as a whole, but not necessarily the individual. And society would, I think, expect that of someone who was capable of performing miracles. And so in a way that separated uh -oh. him out and made him a target instead of an exalted figure, if that makes sense. Mm. Well, I don't, I don't see that that's what made him a target. I, what I see made him a target was that he spoke and acted with authority and that authority mm. was heretical in the eyes mm. of, of the established church, uh, the, yes, yes. you know, the, the Pharisees, you know, one of the things I think is useful um, as we delve into this is maybe you would agree. I don't know. You can confirm this is it doesn't really matter whether we're talking about Jesus as a historical figure or a mythological figure, there's significance in this mm -hmm. conversation. So I hope anybody listening can understand that um, we're not trying to, to speak pure historical facts when we talk about Lazarus being raised from the dead, because sure. there's, there's one, it may or may not have happened. And two, there's so many different ways that we can interpret such a, such an right. event too. Right. But I think what um, I think Jesus he was as an embodiment of the Christ. He was here exclusively to heal. I think what ostracizes someone like a Jesus is that the healing, the, the unifying love that someone like him brings to this world is not according to the expectations of egos. Thank it's you. It's not. It's not according to 
the societal expectation. You know, Jesus was aware of the authority of love and its presence, and that is where he acted from. And rather than fulfilling the agendas and ideologies of those who were maybe surrounding Mm -hmm. him. And so I think he was here to heal, but at the same time, that healing is not what we conceive of it as. And I think that can cause problems because there are certain expectations. I remember reading an account with Ramana Maharshi where a, a devotee had come from the U.S. and was sitting with him and said, since you have such God realization, why aren't you out preaching it? Why aren't you out you know, sharing it. And, and his response was brilliant. And he basically said, who said I'm not? Uh, yeah. But, he, you know, he hardly, spark, hardly spoke and he hardly moved. There's a way in which ministry, which even that term is so exquisite in its proper meaning, ministry is not of anything of our will. It is of that will to love that trumps all other wills, right. you know? And okay. it, I think there is there is a way in which, I think we have to talk about individuation separately from that aspect about healing. Yeah, because we started out talking about individuation. So let's go deeper into that. It is a lonely path <laughs> at times. And it's a paradox and an irony that the deeper one realizes one's oneness the more individuated one becomes from other individuals. And there's a loneliness that goes along with that. Yep. And there's a real conflict with collectivist thinking that goes along with that too. Yep. Yes. Yep. Because it's not rugged individualism, but it it is true individuation in its proper form. Right. And as you yeah. uh, mentioned, you know, uh, there's an authority in that too, because our individuation yes. comes from this realization that we are not beholden to, validated by, uh, you know, deriving our sovereignty mm. from the collective, but from the divine. Bingo. You hit it. And that's where, that's where the emotional conflict of loneliness appears. And it's where our true aloneness manifests is in that, uh, like I, how you said it, we're, we're not beholden to anything. Another way of saying that is that to live in Christ consciousness, to live with that unifying love is to exist on no side, to, to experience no provincial attitude yes. toward any thing or purpose or aim or, or gesture, because for love to become sided, will will it'll erase its unifying feature, yes. right? It'll eliminate it. And so the loneliness of the Christ is that it must stand alone for and as love in order for it to be genuine. And that is outside of any kind of collectivist or, or, or what's the, it's outside of the partnering that egos would try to accomplish together. That just made me cry. <laughs> Hmm. What's hitting you? Will you speak it? I will as soon as I can speak. Yeah, yeah. That's a Christed moment. Well, you know, I mentioned to you before that I um, oh, this is maybe a year ago, I think, maybe more, maybe longer, but I went through a period in my um, awakening. Um, I went through this period where I was feeling stigmata 
in my hands and feet. And that sort of started up again the last few days, maybe because I was thinking about this. I am not going to include all this. No, you, sh- you must. You must. <laughs> you must include all this. So yesterday, and it was strongest in one of my feet, and I've had this vibration happening in one of, my, one of the chakras in my feet. So I went online because I was interested in what Jesus' position was on the, on the cross, uh, specifically his feet. And I was looking at these crucifixes. And, you know, I was raised Catholic. I've looked at crucifixes most of my life, and I had never seen it before. You know, that this was an actual man mm. on this cross. Mm. And all the mm. cruelty and the bravery and the loneliness he must have felt just absolutely hit me in the heart. Mm. You know, having been raised Catholic, we were taught that um, we were born with original sin. And so the reason all of that happened, the reason Jesus ended up on the cross was to accept our punishment for us, you know. And I, and in, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, it's a very kind of sterile idea. It's, um, Mm -hmm. it didn't contain, I mean, the love in that was theoretical, but when you see him in his physical form, and when I saw that, oh, this was a this was an actual human person like me who walked the earth and was persecuted in such a and tortured in such a horrible way, then I can see the love and it's not sterile uh-huh. and it's uh-huh. not distant, you know, it's the same love everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, God, I'm so in celebration of of what you're saying and where you're saying it from right now it's my heart is tingling um because christ's journey is our own it's it's living in a world that is absolutely terrible at times and defeating and tyrannical and vicious and you know the cross is where the two where the vertical and horizontal dimensions of our being meet is right there in the heart and where we are struck by the cruelty, by the hatred and what is so exemplified in the Christed self is a willingness to love even that, yeah. right? And that, that has so much to do with birthing ourselves as individuated expressions of Christness to carry the burden of the world, to carry that and and to suffer for it, and yet be wholeheartedly devoted to that real purpose of love. Yeah. That's why we're here. Well spoken. This is why those who are truly educated in Christianity can make the claim that there is no truer path, because in the story of Jesus and the Christ, there is the full exemplification, the full example of what it means to live in the boldest, fullest possible way. And, and yeah. you know, including and maybe especially in the crucifixion. Yeah. To, to be able to accept an experience like that and love it even so. Yeah. And still say, forgive them for they know not what yeah. they do. Man, you sip of water. <laughs> which is 
which is, which is forgive us because we're mm-hmm. all mistaken. You know, I, I think in that way, it's very useful to say that each of us has perpetuated the crucifixion in our own lives by turning away from love. Yeah. By turning toward. I, I like that interpretation too of the idea of sin being not something that you've done wrong and need to be punished for, but simply being mistaken. Yeah. Simply, simply offering one's allegiance to notions taught by other people who were mistaken. And that's really what our path is about, is seeing and undoing and correcting those mistakes. Yep. Yep. Simple errors in perception. Speaking of the crucifixion, there's, I think, something very useful. And this is something that I've heard a number of scholars and mystics talk about where, um, you know, Nietzsche pointed out that... uh, Christianity or, or the lives of spiritual individuals began to decay and fall apart when they accepted that Jesus dying on the cross was enough to mm-hmm. uh, save one's life. And, you know, if you just believed in that and, 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 and bowed to Jesus for that, you were saved. And what Nietzsche articulated was that um, it's on us. It's on us to become the fullest possible expression of what we can be. And so if we looked at if we look at that crucifixion as an act that we are headed toward, a self-sacrifice so profound that it means giving up the self, giving yeah. up what we have known ourselves to be. And as you stated, all of those erroneous parts of our being that have been conditioned and taught into us and to to undergo that crucifixion, we could say that's the awakening journey. Yeah. Not to suffer, but to to liberate, to free. Right, because in the beginning, we don't even know the ways we've been imprisoned. Like Gurdjieff said, if, if you're going to get yourself out of prison, the first thing you have to do is recognize that you're in it. <laughs> Let's shift just a little bit and talk about the... Well, another aspect of individuation and loneliness, uh, which is something I like to think of as being alone as everything. Yes. Which is a really interesting experience. It's something I touch occasionally. And in the moments that I do, it's overwhelming. It's um, an understanding that as everything, when you know that you're always meeting yourself, always speaking to yourself, always interacting with yourself, either loving or harming or um, any other dynamic. It's just you, that you're everywhere. You are the universe. Hmm. There is such a profound aloneness in that. Yes. And I think perhaps it might not be, I don't think it's a stretch to say that it is from that aloneness as everything that God was was inspired to create the universe. I mean, creation proceeded, in my understanding, from God's wish to experience God. Oh, now we're going to get into fun territory, aren't we? Yay. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> well, you know, the, the cleanest way I've ever heard this said was, I think it was Muji who said, you are not alone as an individual. You are alone as the one. Mm. 
Yes. And if we look at God as pure, pure, absolute selflessness, no self, mm-hmm. and that its emanation is instead of having itself, it gave itself as everything. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. That to experience our aloneness then is to experience that absolute essence of God, that there's no me and you. There is I. I. There is I am. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I hesitate to say what I'm about to say because I don't want to diminish the magnificence of that in any way. But there's also, there was a, a certain fright that came with that. There was a certain sense that I could never outrun myself as well. And I know this is very, this is my ego peeking through, of course, but there's simultaneously a sense of spaciousness and expansion and explosion and also the end of certain things that I had relied on to anchor me in meaning, in time, in a body, and just the knowing that there was just me everywhere Hmm. was a strangely, like simultaneously huge and also like, oh my God, like I said, I could never outrun myself. I don't know if that (laughs) is is comprehensible. I don't know where you're going yet, but I'm anxious to find out. Are you? Okay. Well, I think it goes back to that idea that of being alone as everything is a profound, not loneliness, but a profound solitude. Yes. And it also brings with it, ah, here's where I was going. It also brings with it a responsibility. Total. Total responsibility for all of it. That is daunting. That is so daunting. That's why people don't accept it. As, yeah. their, as their life purpose and task. Yeah. This idea that I can't point to something over there and say, that's bad and it's your fault. Yeah. Um, that is also me. That also right. is something I am required to, well, I'm not required, but will spontaneously love and must if I'm yeah. to be true to this. Yep. That's, now we can understand through what you're saying, the uh, terrifying possibility of resurrection <clears throat> that were were we to die to all that we thought we were and all that we thought our life was for whether it's from the most uh, common things of making a buck to satisfying ourselves with a little you know vacation here or there to whatever even the more uh, you know purposeful actions that we see but the, the falling away of those in this total responsibility to live and be what we really are. And, you know, every person is on their own, within their own sphere of understanding that purpose, but it is our common destination. And along, you know, Jesus said something very significant to the loneliness piece when he told he told his one thing, I think he told one of his disciples that those who follow their mother and father are not ready to follow him. And it says something very profound about loneliness in the way that we walk through this world with invisible connections to people of the past, people in our present milieu. And those keep us from a sense of loneliness. In an overt manner, we, you know, we 
reach out. We call the person, we text the person, we get on social media so that we don't feel so lonely. But there's always this black hole of loneliness that one is at least unconsciously aware of, and it's Mm -hmm. calling. And we treat it as something to be avoided, something to be run from, something to hide from, something to fix and change and eliminate. I mean, you can go online and find thousands of examples of what to do to to cure your loneliness, everything from, you know, start a new hobby to, you know, join a new community. And it's all good. But in this avoidance of this loneliness, we never come to the true recognition of the aloneness that's on the other side. Yeah. And 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 what you're speaking of, that total responsibility to live and breathe, to be the hands and feet of God here. Yes. Uh, because that's that's too intimidating a possibility for most mm-hmm. well, for every ego. <laughs> that's a little bit what I was talking about when I, I said that most of our interaction with other people is performative because we rely on these rituals and these, um, you know, the reaching out to another or the showing up for another to help with something, et cetera. And I don't mean to imply that those are bad things in any way, but that quote that you um, referred to that Jesus said, I don't know the exact quote, but it was something like, he who does not hate his mother and father cannot follow me. Yeah. Yeah. Is that how it went? And just to bring this down to the absolute material experience as a human, um, you know, I've come up against this sort of dynamic in my own life where um, at one point in my journey, I realized that the dysfunctionality of the way members of my family interacted was incompatible with my path. Hmm. And still, you know, still in processing the guilt that comes along with having to separate myself from that in order to be authentic. I don't know why the word performative speaks to that um, for me so powerfully, but that's kind of what it was. You know, you show up and you do these things and then, you know, you're in good graces everywhere. Um, There wasn't any authenticity in it. It was a very um, just going through the motions kind of a thing. And that's just my, my particular family operates like that. And I, and I wonder sometimes what Jesus would have done if he had, uh, Come from a family that was toxic. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But you're, you're articulating something important, though, which is, I mean, I, I also had, um, in my first awakening experience, I had the very clear recognition that I was not of my mother and father, mm. and that where my life was going to unfold didn't include them specifically it wasn't it didn't specifically exclude them either mm-hmm. but it was clear that what my business is here is not familial it's not a bloodline it's not mm-hmm. a it's not of a, a, a surname you know it's it's of something much deeper and how we respond to that i suppose is very deeply individual because i think there's a time for loving and forgiving those familial ancestral roots and there's a time for stepping away from them yeah and uh, you know the christ essence in us will decide when i talk about my own family i don't mean to say they're all horrible people and um, no, no, no. <laughs> you know and i'm rejecting them no i mean because i see them as me too mm-hmm. um but there's parts of me that me can't cooperate with you know jesus also yeah, said yeah. 
don't cast pearls before swine. And going back to that piece you mentioned very early on in our conversation about the societal expectations around help, mm-hmm. you know, is uh, how can how can one offer one's pearls to those who don't want them? Mm-hmm. Or who want them for the wrong reasons, you know, yeah. or who would use them in the service of ego as, a, as opposed to uh, as intended. Yeah, that's why we really have to have the eyes and ears here to respond to this invitation of Christ. You know, and I would imagine even just the, the people who may listen to this episode will find themselves incredibly cynical and skeptical and argumentative towards what we're saying. Mm-hmm. And to those individuals, I would say, this isn't for you. Mm-hmm. This isn't yeah. for you, you know, and there are, and that's not to treat it in some self-righteous manner as like, well, you know, we're better than you and you're, you're not deserving of it, but it's that we have to have within our Christ essence, we have to have this extraordinary openness and willingness to say yes to our God nature in a way that activates it, makes it real within our life. Right. That's a permission for God to enter here. Yes. And that uh, circles back to that sovereignty we talked about earlier, that we're not beholden to family to validate this path that we're on. Not family, not nationality, not race, not political party, not sex, right. not gender, not religion, none of them. Right. None of them. Any of those will fraction. It will split and divide our unity. Exactly. And so we can see that within any of those ideologies, whether it's familial, national, racial, gender, religion, this is where war develops. This is the anti-love gesture, is to divide what is undividable. That's even the word individual. Individual. Mm-hmm. Undividable. I never saw that etymology before. You're right. Exactly. Right? Because nobody looks deeply enough at what is the individual actually. It's actually an undividable unit of the whole. So in a way, by cultivating one's own embodiment of Christ consciousness, one heals that divide. Yes. But does so on a level that you know, is not necessarily visible to eyes that it can't see it. Mm-hmm. Correct. Well put. Yeah. <laughs> because if you look with your physical eyes, you know, Jesus has another, I mean, we can't not quote Jesus here. You know, those who know me know I'm a deep lover of Jesus and his teachings um, in a non-fundamentalist way. He says, uh, the lamp of the body is the eye. And when the eye is single, the body is filled with light. And if we understand that statement, it means something, it can mean, I mean, again, there's multiple ways of viewing things, but one of the things it can mean is that if you do not look with the eye of singleness, the eye of unity, what you will see is division. So when I look at Susie or John or Loretta or whomever across the street, if I look at a body and I look at specific actions, all I'll see is what's dividable. So you're right. That vision is reserved for those who truly care to see. And when they do, they see exactly as you said, it's invisible. It's not of the body. It's not of the senses or the flesh. All distinctions can be made there in the flesh. And not only is it indivisible, but it's indestructible. That's what makes it Christ. 
Christ did. The consciousness is that it is forever. It is eternal in its essence. And we and we here we don't speak of something far off, remote, and transcendent. We are speaking of that simple knowing that is present to our experience always. I understand you've brought a poem. Would you share it with us? I will. Um, <laughs> sorry, we're giggling because we were joking behind the scenes. But <laughs> Okay, today's poem is by Hafiz. And it's called, I Have Come Into This World to See This. I have come into this world to see this. The sword drop from men's hands, even at the height of their arc of anger, because we have finally realized there is just one flesh to wound, and it is his, the Christ's, our beloved's. I have come into this world to see this. All creatures hold hands as we pass through this miraculous existence we share on the way to an even greater being of soul, a being of just ecstatic light, forever entwined and at play with him. I have come into this world to hear this. Every song the earth has sung since it was conceived in the divine's womb and began spinning from his wish. Every song by wing and fin and hoof. Every song by hill and field and tree and woman and child. Every song of stream and rock. Every song of tool and lyre and flute. Every song of gold and emerald and fire. Every song the heart should cry with magnificent dignity to know itself as God. For all other knowledge will leave us again in want and aching. Only imbibing the glorious sun will complete us. I have come into the world to experience this. Men so true to love they would rather die before speaking an unkind word. Men so true their lives are his covenant, the promise of hope. I have come into this world to see this. The sword drop from men's hands even at the height of their arc of rage because we have finally realized there is just one flesh we can wound. Amen. Amen. Mm. So perfect. Thanks for listening to this episode of Into the Mystery. We hope you gained something useful. If you'd like to learn more about our work, you can go to our websites. Mine is at adivadra.org, A-D-I-V-A-J-R-A.org, or visit Rishika's at interdimensionalyoga.com. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes, be sure to drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.